You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so simple? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the lion! Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the big five studios of Hollywood's golden age. If you aren't listening to these in order, I explained the origins of the big five in episode four on Paramount Pictures. Today's studio is MGM. The studio, who at the height of its popularity, boasted that their studio had, quote, more stars than there are in the heavens. MGM has gone through many, many different hands, ebbing and flowing in influence from the 1950s to today. Like Paramount, MGM has had an extensive television and real estate background in addition to the films they've made, but I'll be focusing more on the film side of things. If you're interested in any of the other stuff, I'll have links for you to check out in the show notes. With that, Let's take our places. It's showtime. The year was 1924, and Marcus Lowe needed some better pictures to attract audiences to his theaters. Son of poor Jewish immigrants and owner of theater chain Lowe's, Lowe's had been an early investor of the Nickelodeon Theater, investing alongside Adolf Zucker in the Automatic Vaudeville Company before branching out on his own. Lowe first purchased Metro Pictures, founded in 1915 in Jacksonville, Florida, in hopes of acquiring better content. The films, however, were not up to the standards that Lowe believed he needed to succeed against his competitors. So, in 1924... Lowe purchased Goldwyn Pictures, which had been founded by Samuel Goldfish, now Goldwyn, with his two partners, Edgar and Archibald Selwyn. Their partnership had been far from a match made in heaven, and Goldwyn had left the company in 1922. Lowe seized the opportunity and purchased Goldwyn Studios, which included their Culver City backlot. Hearing of this merger and knowing that the New York-based Lowe would need someone to oversee the day-to-day operations in Hollywood, Louis B. Mayer, a successful theater owner turned studio owner, convinced Lowe to purchase his company as well. Lowe agreed, and on April 17, 1944, MGM, short for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, was forged with Lowe as president, Mayer as VP, and former Universal man Irving Thalberg, who at 24 already had a reputation for his savant-like ability to select scripts, staff, and stars that yielded immensely profitable films overseeing production. MGM hit the ground running 
releasing over 100 films in its first two years. Their goal was to eventually release one picture per week, but the closest they ever got was a film about every nine days. MGM had their first hit early with 1925's Ben-Hur, one of several MGM films that experimented with Technicolor several years before the studio ever even touched sound. Lowe's empire was off to a strong start, but unfortunately he wasn't around long to relish in his success. Lowe died in 1927, and the control of MGM went to Nicholas Skank, Lowe's former right-hand man. This was not a popular decision, particularly with Mayer, as he had assumed he would be appointed president upon Lowe's death. Skank and Lowe didn't like each other. Mayer was known to refer to Skank as Mr. Skunk behind his back. Mayer's opinion was unlikely to change, especially after Skank allowed William Fox, a Fox Film Corporation, to buy the Lowe's family MGM stock in 1929. This infuriated and Thalberg, who, despite their high-ranking status within the studio, were not stockholders and therefore could not challenge the sale. This didn't dissuade Mayer one bit, who used his powerful political affiliations to successfully persuade the Justice Department to block the sale, citing antitrust laws. Not long after this, William Fox was in a serious car crash and was unable to pursue the sale for the time being. By the time he had recovered, the stock market crash of 1929 had already occurred, obliterating Fox's fortune and preventing the sale from going forward for good. Skank never forgave Mayer, believing that he had cost him his fortune. So I've laid the groundwork, I know the exact position of a room, and I've made friends with our ballet master, Pimanoff. Listen, Heinrich, I've taken all my savings, everything, and I'm going to enjoy spending it, all of it. It's terribly expensive here, Heinrich. Oh, but it's wonderful. I can't. I'll lose my job. It's like being in jail. Rely on me, Papa. I will make this merger go through. I never fail. Oh, poor madame. Her mind is tortured. I'm afraid she will... I don't need advice, thanks very much. I need money. Music all the time. Oh, it's wonderful. Grand Hotel. People coming, going. Nothing ever happens. MGM wanted to put an unobtainable and illustrious glamour onto the screen for its audiences and knew that in order to do this, they must first start with talent. Early stars for the company included Greta Garbo, a Swedish-American actress whom Thalberg groomed into a movie star, Joan Crawford, who started her career with MGM as a body double for another one of their stars, Norma Shearer, and Lon Chaney, the man of a thousand faces. Later, actors like Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Gene Harlow would join the ranks. To direct them, MGM hired King Vidor, Eric von Stroheim, and Victor Seastrom. Joan Crawford began her storied career as Lucille Lesueur before becoming Joan Crawford. Her name was the result of a Name That Star contest around 1925. Joan Crawford, after a campaign of self-promotion to get better roles, was one of the few stars of the silent era to transition into sound. 
During her tenure with MGM, she starred in films such as Grand Hotel, 1932, Rain, and Forsaking All Others. In 1937, Crawford was named Queen of the Movies by Life magazine. The same year, her film slipped from 7th to 16th at the box office. To make matters worse, in a 1938 open letter in independent film journal penned by Harry Brandt, she, as well as several other stars, including current MGM contracted talent Greta Garbo and Crawford's current professional rival, Norma Shearer, were labeled as, quote, box office poison. Brandt, the president of the Independent Theaters Association of America, claimed that these stars named in his letter were not worth the salaries their respective studios were paying them based on the box office. This seemed to be a sign of things to come for Crawford, whose subsequent MGM films, while critically well-received, were box office flops. MGM would buy out her contract in 1943 for $100,000. With the advent of the sound film, MGM was slow and reluctant to adapt, the last of the major studios to do so. This didn't seem to matter in the long run, or the short run for that matter, as their first sound picture, the Broadway Melody in 1929, took home the second-ever Best Picture Oscar, one year after the silent film, Wings. As the Great Depression worsened, MGM, like all the other studios, had to get creative to save money to stay afloat. MGM did this by recycling or reusing anything they could, including sets, props, and costumes from previous pictures, a practice they continued even after the economy recovered. In fact, MGM was the only major studio who turned a profit every year until the mid-1950s. Why'd you get off the boat at all? You know it doesn't stop here again for four weeks, don't you? Sure I do. Think I'm overjoyed about it? But it's just got to be, that's all. Well, then? I left the boat here for the same reason I took it at Sago. What reason? I got mixed up in a little trouble, and I thought I'd stay out of town until the gendarmes forgot about it. And what a cast-iron nerve you've got. You have to have in my line. But don't worry, big boy. I'll stay out from underfoot. I'll even pay for my board if you insist on it nicely. Clark Gable was already working steadily in the motion pictures before he joined the MGM roster in 1930. A year later, he starred in his first MGM film alongside Joan Crawford in 1931's Dance Fools Dance. Gable and his pencil-thin mustache rose to popularity quickly, despite many bumps and bruises along the way. He was nearly fired, alongside Joan Crawford, for having an affair while she was still married to her first husband. Gable would go on to star in six films with Jean Harlow, whom you heard with Gable in the previous clip. Harlow died tragically of kidney failure at the age of 26 during the production of their last picture together, 1937's Saratoga. The film had to be completed using three different women to fill in for Harlow. According to legend, Gable was punished by MGM for refusing to take a part in a film, and when he refused, they lent him out to Columbia, then a minor studio that Louis B. Mayer referred to as Siberia. Gable was on a $2,000 a week salary at the time, whether he worked or not, so Mayer lent him to Columbia for $2,500 a week for their film, It Happened One Night. Gable's legendary punishment 
won him an Oscar. Despite their success, Mayer and Thalberg had become estranged. Mayer replaced Thalberg in 1932 when he became ill, and MGM immediately felt the change with the shift in film quality. It was speculated in a Hollywood Reporter article that Thalberg, known for working long, tireless hours, was in frail health and might have to retire early. Staff producers, including David O. Selznick, had been asked to help up to fill the void, but none were able to hold a candle to Thalberg's taste. When Thalberg finally returned, it was as a unit producer instead of as head of production, with first pick of the projects. Thalberg continued his winning streak for MGM with films like China Seas, A Night at the Opera, both 1935, and Romeo and Juliet in 1936. Always frail, Thalberg was rumored to have wanted to break away from MGM and start his own production company, a feat he never achieved. In 1936, at the age of 37, Thalberg died of pneumonia. One of his last decisions as a producer was to turn down the opportunity to make a film based on the upcoming book, Gone with the Wind. I don't know, but 10 years, the next 10 years are the best years of my life. Uh, at any age, the next 10 years are the best years in a man's life. If I could only try the other way first before I made up my mind, maybe, suppose, suppose I got myself a job. Well, if you're going in for the law, I'd hate you to miss this scholarship. We have to apply inside a month. Well, can't I use that month to find out? Couldn't I have that month? Suppose I went to New York and I, I got myself a job and, well, I, I could find out what life was all about on my own. Andrew Hardy, you can't go off to New York all by yourself. You're hardly more than a baby. Mom! Betsy will think that you mean that. and Well, you know that I'm 18. Mayer took over Thalberg's duties in addition to his own becoming the first million-dollar executive in American history. More interested in crowd-pleasers than Thalberg had been, Mayer changed MGM's focus to making series films like Andy Hardy, an anthology of 16 films starring Mickey Rooney in the titular role. An interesting player at MGM at this time was Ida Coverman, who had been hired in 1929 as Louis B. Mayer's secretary. As the years had gone on, she became one of MGM's top players. According to MGM executive Robert Vogel, Coverman, quote, damn near ran the studio. Coverman would eventually be credited with starting the School for Young Stars, which fostered the talent needed for the pictures. Students included Judy Garland, Elizabeth Taylor, and Mickey Rooney. She would eventually serve as the head of public relations. Mervyn Leroy, a former Warner Brothers man, was hired in 1937 to replace the irreplaceable Thalberg after it was decided that Mayer couldn't do both roles efficiently. One of Leroy's first moves was to convince Mayer to buy the rights to the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Give me back my slippers. I'm the only one that knows how to use them. They're no use to you. Give them back to me. Give them back. Keep tight inside of them. Their magic must be very powerful, or she wouldn't want them so badly. You stay out of this, Glinda, or I'll fix you as well. Oh, <laughs> rubbish. You have no power here. Be gone before somebody drops the house on you. Very well. I'll bide my time. And as for you, my fine lady, it's true. 
true. I can't attend you here and now as I'd like. But just try to stay out of my way. Just try. I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. 1939 is considered by many film historians to be the best year of film. MGM was in some way responsible for two of the films most often cited when making this claim. Though Gone with the Wind was produced by David Oselznik's International Pictures, MGM provided financial assistance and, of course, lent Selznick Clark Gable. MGM also distributed the film as part of their deal with Selznick, who also happened to be Mayer's son-in-law. The Wizard of Oz is one of the most iconic films of the 20th century and made a movie star out of its 16-year-old lead, Judy Garland. Garland received her only Oscar, a Juvenile Academy Award, for her role in Oz as well as Babes in Arms. As popular as the film remains over 80 years after its initial release, it took nearly 20 years before the film turned a profit. Sixteen years later, the film would become the first American film to broadcast in one evening on a major network, CBS. From 1959 to 1991, Wizard of Oz telecasted yearly on the network at the low, low cost of $225,000 per showing. Judy Garland continued her string of successes off of Wizard of Oz with films like Meet Me in St. Louis and Easter Parade, both 1948, though her personal life was quite troubled. After a series of mental health issues, some likely in part due to her insanely demanding work schedule, MGM would suspend her contract in 1950. Starting in 1942, MGM released its five highest-paid actresses from their roster in an effort to save money. Myrna Loy and Jeanette McDonald were eventually rehired in the late 40s, but Joan Crawford, who'd been labeled box office poison, would go on to have a career resurgence at Warner Brothers. And the last two, Norma Shearer, who was also Thalberg's widow, and Greta Garbo, retired. Starting just before World War II and continuing through the war, Mayer began changing the way MGM's films were produced. Mayer compiled a College of Cardinals, which was a group of senior producers who controlled the studio's films. By doing this, MGM began resting on their laurels, relying on sequels. Despite this, production values remained high, with even their B material carrying the polish of any other studio's A pictures. Also in the 1940s, MGM cut their yearly output from 50 films a year to a mere 25. They also began churning out musicals featuring Judy Garland, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, and Frank Sinatra. Young Sinatra and former Broadway performer Kelly starred in pictures like 1945's Anchors Away, reusing sets from the previously produced musical 1944's Meet Me in St. Louis. 
Anchors Away featured Gene Kelly dancing with the animated Jerry Mouse and was the first of three films Kelly and Sinatra would make together, the other two being Take Me Out to the Ball Game and On the Town, both in 1949. Like all the other studios, the loss of revenue from the 1948 Supreme Court ruling and the popularity of the television hit MGM hard. Their theaters, Lowe's Inc., had to separate from MGM after the U.S. versus Paramount Pictures ruling, a process that would take them five years. Unhappy with Mayer's recent committee methods, Schenck tasked Mayer into finding the next Thalberg. Dor Sherry, who'd previously run RKO, was brought on board. Sherry was known for his musicals, and this expertise helped MGM keep afloat for a while with films like An American in Paris in 1951, Singing in the Rain in 1952, and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers in 1954. When Judy Garland was let go from her $6,000 a week contract in 1950, the cost cutting didn't end there. Mayer was fired from MGM, the company he'd helped build, in August of 1951. Tomorrow will we get? Can I watch you play roulette? May I stay up late for supper? Is it awfully, awfully, awfully? You'll drive us wild. Stop! Silly child. Is everybody celebrated, full of sin and dissipated? Is it hot enough to blister? Will I be your little sister? Gigi, you are absurd. Now, not another word. Gigi. Let her gush and jabber. Let her be enthused. I cannot remember when I have been more amused. Oh! Stop it! Nicely invented champagne. It's plain as it can be. They thought of you and me the night they invented champagne. They absolutely knew that all we'd want to do is fly to the sky on champagne and shout to everyone in sound that since the world began, no woman or man has ever been as happy as we are tonight. As the studio system faded, MGM's illustrious image soon followed. Skank died in 1955, and for the first time in its 33-year history, in 1957, the studio lost money. Sherry was released from his contract and replaced by Joseph Vogel, with Saul Siegel as head of production. The following year, MGM put out its last great musical, Gigi, which was not only a box office success, but also brought the studio nine Academy Awards, including Best Picture, the last of the MGM musicals to do so. I would do anything for you, Miss Sally, except betray my own people. In the name of all the gods, Judah, what do the lives of a few Jews mean to you? If I cannot persuade them, that does not mean I would help you murder them. Besides, you must understand this, Marcella. I believe in the past of my people and in their future. Future? You are a conquered people. You may conquer the land. You may slaughter the people. But that is not the end. We will rise again. Uh, you live on dead dreams. You live on the myths of the past. The glory of Solomon is gone. Do you think it will return? Joshua will not rise again to save you, nor David. There is only one reality in the world today. Look to the West, Judah. 
Don't be a fool. Look to Rome. I would rather be a fool than a traitor or a killer. I am a soldier. Yes, who kills for Rome. And Rome is evil. I warn you. No. I warn you. Rome is an affront to God. Rome is strangling my people and my country, the whole earth. But not forever. And I tell you, the day Rome falls, there will be a shout of freedom such as the world has never heard before. Like the phenomenal success Paramount had with the Ten Commandments, so too did MGM with their own remake. In 1959, Ben-Hur, a four-hour epic starring Charlton Heston, based on the 1880 book Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, and remake of their 1925 silent film, won 11 Academy Awards, a record that holds to this day, though it is shared alongside Titanic and Lord of the Rings' The Return of the King. The success of this film was set a precedent for MGM that would lead to its initial downfall. By 1960, the last of the remaining contracted MGM players had either retired or converted to television. MGM started relying on the profits of the prior year's big-budget epic to cover the costs of the next year's productions. Unfortunately, the success of Ben-Hur was not one that MGM could replicate. MGM produced four remakes, including Cimarron in 1960, the original 1931 version had earned the now, spoiler alert, defunct RKO three Oscars, but Cimarron, like the other three, all failed at the box office. Siegel and Vogel resigned and were replaced by Robert M. Whiteman and Robert O'Brien, who managed to temporarily save the studio with films like 1965's Dr. Zhivago, 1967's The Dirty Dozen, and the Kubrick classic 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. These were also only temporary fixes, and after the backing of yet another series of flops, Whiteman and O'Brien were out by 1967. Desiring the Culver City backlot, not to mention MGM's illustrious history, in 1969, Kirk Krikorian purchased 40% of MGM with the intention of attaching the MGM name to his Las Vegas hotel and casino. When Krikorian took control, he hired James T. Aubrey to oversee the drastic reduction in filmmaking, selling parts of the lot for real estate development, and selling much of their memorabilia, including the iconic ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. Two years later, the MGM record label was sold off as well. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street and there's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. 
and we sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Throughout the 70s, MGM, which had once aspired to put out a picture a week, now only put out about five medium-budget films and an assortment of small-budget films each year. Many of these were co-productions with other studios, which is when two or more studios worked together to put out one film. While some films during this time would prove successful, including Westworld, Soylent Green, both in 1973, and Network in 1976, this was a far cry from the glamour and success they'd once seen in the 1930s and 40s. Krikorian continued to slowly strip the studio, eventually shutting down or selling off essentially everything but film production. In 1980, Krikorian split his hotel chain and studio into two separate companies to increase film production once more. Having closed their own distribution unit in 1973, MGM would need to create another. After the monumental failure of 1981's Heaven's Gate, Transamerica, the current owner of United Artists, put the studio up for sale. MGM purchased UA, renaming the entire company MGM UA Entertainment. The early days were rocky, but they did manage to produce some hits, including the James Bond film Octopussy and Poltergeist in the early 1980s. By 1982, not even MGM or UA's library could save it, and MGM relied on the distribution of other studios' films to stay afloat. Okay, this is the part where things are going to get a little chaotic. MGM is about to go through a lot of hands really quickly, and I tried to make this next part as coherent as possible when it's anything but. Essentially, Krikorian is about to play a decades-long game of hot potato with MGM. Seeing the opportunity to add the MGM catalog to his television channel, Superstation TBS, Ted Turner purchased MGM for $1.5 billion in cash and stock in 1986. Turner renamed the company MGM Entertainment, selling MGM's UA section back to Krikorian. Turner was unable to finance the rest of the deal, and would eventually sell MGM's production back to Kokorian and the lot to Lorimar Pictures. Turner ended up keeping the pre-May 1986 library of films from MGM, along with the RKO films, 
and the pre-1950 Warner Brothers films, both of which had come with the United Artists purchase when MGM bought it from Transamerica in 1982. Krikorian took the reclamation of MGM as an opportunity to rename the studio once more for some reason to MGM UA Communications and attempted to sell it off for the remainder of the 80s, but was unable to do so. Then, in 1991, an Italian financier by the name of Giancarlo Peretti announced his intention to buy MGM UA. Despite some concerns about his background, Peretti was able to license the MGM UA library to Time Warner for home video and to Ted Turner for television rights until 2003. Peretti had purchased and merged MGM UA with his previously acquired French production company, Pathé, renaming his company MGM Pathé. This deal lasted about a year until Peretti, buried in a litany of lawsuits, including securities fraud, lost control of MGM Pathé to Bank Credit Lyonnais, who converted the company back to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. The bank hired a former Paramount exec, Frank Mancuso Sr. as CEO, and former MGM and Warner Brothers Pictures executive, John Calley, to head the United Artists division of the company. MGM began distributing again for a company called Carolco, who produced films like Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Stay here. I'll be back. MGM found itself up for sale once more, and once again, Kirk Krikorian rebought the studio. MGM began re-expanding its film and television library with the purchase of Orion Pictures and the Motion Pictures Corporation of America, considered today to be MGM's primary asset. To expand their production department, MGM created a film unit called the Samuel Goldwyn Company in 1998. Samuel Goldwyn Jr. sued MGM over using the Goldwyn name, claiming trademark infringement and unfair competition. MGM settled in early 1999, changing the unit's name to G2. Once again, in 2004, MGM was up for sale. After several bids, Sony purchased MGM and combined the MGM films for domestic distribution under the Columbia TriStar Motion Picture Group. Sony had previously bought MGM's prior lot, which had also gone through a number of different owners, the last of which being Columbia. In 2006, MGM, after bouncing around for over 20 years, made its return to distribution, striking deals with Lakeshore Entertainment and the Weinstein Company, though the latter of which would only last for a little under three years. Also in 2006, Tom Cruise and his production partner Paula Warner signed an agreement with MGM to run United Artists with Cruise either producing or starring in the films which would be distributed by MGM. With the rise of digital cinema, MGM was a fast adapter, adding about 100 of their films to iTunes, which included some of their most valuable properties like Rocky and Mad Max. Deals with DirecTV, YouTube, and Comcast followed not long after. MGM continued to struggle financially and on November 3, 2010, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
A mere seven weeks later, executives announced that the studio had emerged from bankruptcy, placing Spyglass Entertainment execs Gary Barber and Richard Birnbaum as co-chairs and CEOs of the studio. Out of the doghouse, MGM moved forward with remakes of popular 80s properties, Robocop and Poltergeist. Their method of running MGM focused more on co-investing on films with other studios, which would also handle all marketing and distribution. For example, MGM's first post-bankruptcy film, 2011's Zookeeper, was co-distributed by Columbia Pictures, while Red Dawn was overseen by Film District and Cabin in the Woods was distributed by Lionsgate. Today, MGM continues its co-productions, signing deals in 2019 with George Clooney's company Smokehouse Pictures and the Russo Brothers' AGBO Films and Braun Creative. In very timely news, MGM's most recent Bond film, No Time to Die, was the first film to be postponed because of the COVID-19 outbreak. MGM, once known for its galaxy of stars, is a very different studio than the one Marcus Lowe envisioned when he first purchased three film companies to make pictures for his theaters. Despite 50 years of struggles, the studio still soldiers on with its lion mascot still roaring at the opening of its pictures. The past isn't dead. James, fate draws us back together. Your enemy is my enemy. And with that, we've made it through another week. If you want to delve into anything more that we covered today, all of my sources, as well as some recommended viewing, is in the show notes. I do as much research and fact-checking as I can for each episode, which I write in the span of about a week. So if I got anything wrong, please let me know and I will correct it on a future episode. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media on Twitter at Tinsel underscore Factory, Instagram at Tinsel Factory Pod, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can old school email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. There will also be some corresponding images for what we covered this week on all social media. Next week, we're covering 20th Century Fox, the studio that streamlined sound and whose name would become synonymous with a television network that the namesake founder had nothing to do with. Thank you for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. (laughs) 